This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. Welcome to the 7th Avenue Project here on KUSP Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly. Well, the Santa Cruz Film Festival opens this coming Thursday, and today on this show, we're going to hear about two of the films. As it happens, they're both about people who took a stand, putting principle before personal gain. The first concerns one of the lesser-known participants in that famous raised-fist protest at the 1968 Olympics. The second film is about a very well-known pop star, Yusu Ndur, I'll talk to the filmmakers and also to Olympic bronze medalist John Carlos in just a moment. And support for the 7th Avenue Project is from the Capitola Book Cafe. Jill Wolfson discusses her book, Cold Hands, Warm Heart, today at 5.30 p.m. at the Capitola Book Cafe. Details at 462-4415. I should also mention that uh, in a couple days at the Capitola Book Cafe, the philosopher Alva Noe discusses his book, out of our heads, why you are not your brain and other lessons from the biology of consciousness. That's on Tuesday, May 5th. And I spoke to him about that book. Uh, we'll hear a little excerpt from that conversation at the end of this show. But first, part one of today's program, The Third Man. Most everybody knows about the famous Black Power salute at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, the photo of American 200-meter runners Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising black-gloved fists as they received their medals, is one of the signature images of the late 20th century. But far fewer people know about the other man on that victory platform, Australian sprinter and silver medalist Peter Norman. They f very few know that he was also part of the demonstration. A new documentary film by his nephew, Matt Norman, describes Peter Norman's role in the protest and the price he paid for it. The film is called Salute, and it's one of many showing at the Santa Cruz Film Festival. Director Matt Norman spoke to me from his home in Australia. Well, Matt, thanks for, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. I have a, an admission to make at the beginning of this interview, and it's that, um, you know, having seen those images and, and uh, films of the 68 Olympics many times in that moment when Tommy Smith and John Carlos gave the Black Power salute, um, I always just thought of your Uncle Peter as the white guy who just happened to be there. Unfortunately, that, that seems to be um, a, a typical occurrence. A lot of people would think that he was a bystander, really, that he was he had to be there because he was a second-place um, silver medalist. And they don't understand what Peter really did do um, to support Tommy and John. What did he tell you about that time in his life, 1968, when he made that decision? And we should say that the decision that he made that is really at the center of this film is yeah. to wear a button which was, um, what was the name of the organization again? Uh, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Which was, a, was a, a project that was actually formed to support black civil rights among the athletes, and it was part of what Tommy Smith and John Carlos were involved in. And, and your uncle made this decision, you know, really quickly. He had just run the, you know, he had just run the 200 meters. He had won the silver medal and was going to find himself on the medal platform with these two other guys who he'd competed against, and he wanted to, um, 
he wanted to support them in some way. So he got this button and wore it. Yeah. He, Peter was, um, was certainly not going to raise a, a hand because, I mean, although um, a lot of people said he did raise a hand um, in support, but he didn't need to do um, what Tommy and John did because that was their own political statement. What Peter did to show that um, just because of the colour of his skin... Um, that he should be supporting something as crucial as this, and it's something that he certainly believed in, which was um, the the rights of African Americans in in um, in America. The the fact that he, you know, because he was under the stadium just before they were walking out, and on their way out, they um, they stopped because Peter said, "Look, can I can I wear one of your badges? I'd love to support this and love to support you guys." And on their way out, they actually grabbed a badge from one of the uh, Harvard rowing team, um, who was a white guy as well. And um, John actually went and grabbed it off him and, and put it on Peter, and, and Peter wore it proudly. So that's how it all began. Did your uncle um, Peter Norman know at that time um, just how much pressure there was on people like John Carlos and Tommy Smith not to do what they did, and, and did he know about the threats that had been made? Peter certainly knew, and John and, and Tommy certainly knew that there was, there was supposedly gunmen in the um, crowd that were going to um, shoot anyone that um, made some kind of political protest, especially about um, uh, American civil rights. So the, the fear factor was certainly there, and it's something that Peter always believed could have happened and and always look you know he looked back and thought well um you know this is dangerous because you know we we live in a society now where you know i still believe it's highly racial um but back then when there were so many issues relating to race um the the chances of death was was quite high um and in fact, in, in Mexico City, just before the Olympics, there had been a slaughter uh, of Mexican students yeah. by the Mexican army, uh, students who were protesting, as many students were across the world in 1968. The Mexican government have um, put out that there was about 10 or 12 people killed, but that's not true. There was up to 2,000 uh, protesters, which were students, young students, killed um, from helicopter gunships, from the police, from their army, um, and that was never reported. And, and in fact, even today, they still deny that all these people were killed. I mentioned the, the Mexico City uh, massacre just as a way of saying that there was violence in the air and said that fears of, of death from the stands were not idle fears. And yet, um, and yet these guys chose to make the protests they did. Now, I think Americans know who followed that story that both Tommy Smith and John Carlos it was pretty much the end of their track careers. They were pretty much um, ostracized from the American track scene for after that, weren't they? Uh, yeah. And and their lives were very difficult after that. Hard to find a job. Your uh, your movie makes the point that Tommy Smith, at one point, the gold medal winner, the world record holder in the two hundred meters, should have been a celebrity. Had to go work in a car wash. Yeah, <laughs> and even then he was being used by um, the people in the car wash. You know, signing autographs at. Um, when, when the um, car wash owner asked him to and then told to go around the back and clean the car. You know, Tommy and John went through um, a lot of threat um, and their families as well. I mean, the, the story with Tommy and John is quite deep and very emotional and, 
where Peter was the one that sort of was by himself because as Tommy and John have said to Peter and, and that is that they had each other where Peter came home to Australia which is 22,000 kilometres away or miles away um, and he was here by himself. So you say Peter went back to Australia and um, so what happened to him? Um, the, I suppose the, the, the most important thing that um, could have come out of what he did was the fact that um, in 1972, um, the proof of the pudding was, was in 1972 for Pete, where um, he qualified for the Munich Olympics, the 72 Munich Olympics, 15 times during that qualifying year. <laughs> and, he, and he was ranked number five in the world. And also, um, that was four years later, and also still held the Commonwealth record for his time. He was not selected for those Munich Olympic Games, which he would have won gold at, um, because of what he did at the previous Games. They thought he was going to muck up again. But um, the fact that he didn't go was one thing. What's even worse is the fact that not one Australian sprinter went to those Games. So if anyone was going to go, it would have been Peter. In order to keep him out of the Olympics, they chose not to send a, uh, a sprint team at all. That's correct. Have they admitted to doing that? Unfortunately, um, the Australian Olympic Committee, or like most Olympic committees, um, they will deny, deny, deny. So what is, their, um, what is their explanation of not sending a sprint team? They've never given one. Wow. They've never given one. You, you could ask them as many times as you like. They believe that there wasn't anyone quick enough <laughs> to be in that sprint team where Peter Norman um, had qualified 15 times, not only for the 200 metres, but for the 100 metres as well. As you say, he he um, qualified you know easily for the Munich Olympics and um, yep. uh, set a record uh, in the Commonwealth in the 200 meters in 1968 that still stands. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it, in fact it equaled the standing world record at that time, and it was only beaten by Tommy Smith's new world record uh, in that 200 meters race. Um, watching your film, I got to see that race again, um, uh, which I had seen previously, but um, this time I really studied. Peter Norman in the race and was amazed because he's a slow starter and he um, had this amazing kick where he managed to make up a good 10, it seemed to me about 10 meters on the home stretch and caught up to John Carlos, who was well ahead of him and actually edged him out for the second place for silver medal. His speed at that point was so great, I thought this guy should have been a 400 meter runner. <laughs> yeah, the, the funny thing about Peter is that um, he said that uh, anyone that runs past 200 meters is, is crazy. He said he, he wouldn't have been able to do it because it, it took so much out of him to do the 200. Funny thing about Pete was that, you know, he was five foot three. Um, he, he was? Short, short legs. And for that sort of speed, everyone knew that he was a slow starter. Um, but he used to believe that um, having a slow start was actually um, the best part of his race because he could then focus on the people in front and just chase them down. Did I hear you right? Did you say he was five feet three? Yes. Wow. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of a sprinter, you know, Olympic caliber sprinter of that height ever. Yeah. Well, you should see, um, you know, when Tommy and John and Peter got together, um, <laughs> Peter used to always feel a little out of place, I can tell you, because <laughs> Tommy and John are about 12 foot, I'm sure. <laughs> together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, now, now, as you said, Peter Norman joined this protest because he was very aware of what was happening in civil rights uh, in the U.S. 
Um, what was happening in Australia at that time as far as its racial situation with Australian Aborigines, and what was his, his relationship to that? He was aware of a lot of the issues that were happening, especially here in Australia. We had... Um, there was two things going on. Number one, the stolen generation. Now, for, for those that don't know what that is, um, back in... Um, up until the 1970s, um, we had uh, young Aboriginal children taken from their families because our government believed that um, they would better assimilate with a white family into society. So um, we had Aboriginal children taken from their homes and put into the homes of white people. Now, um, our Prime Minister... Um, Kevin Rudd has only just said sorry to the Aboriginal people, which is a really big move um, on our government's behalf, and it's and it's certainly um, given um, our Indigenous Australians an opportunity to to start fresh. Although there's still a long way to go, but we also had um, the Aboriginal uh, people were only allowed to vote in 1967, so. Um, the power of voting in our country, uh, you know, I know that America, you don't not normally have to vote. In Australia, it's compulsory. Um, and to know that so many um, uh, people weren't voting because of the colour of their skin is, is atrocious. So, um, as we said, he, he uh, you know, there was a certain retribution in not allowing him to participate in the 72 game. So his days as kind of an international track star were over. Um, and then you, your film says that he was not even invited to the 2000 Sydney Games, where almost everybody who was anybody in Australian Olympic history was invited, any living athlete. Um, but he was not the guy who still held the, the Australian record in the uh, 200 metres. Embarrassingly, um, Peter was actually at my wedding that day. <clears throat> and, um, and the reason why that's embarrassing to me is because... Um, the fact that Peter still holds that record is has never been done before in this country um, for so many years. The fact that he wasn't um, invited in any official capacity to the, our own Olympic Games in Sydney, um, even though um, Peter would have actually won gold at those Olympic Games as well. You mean um, his, his time? time in Mexico. Yeah, his time in Mexico so, would have been good enough, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was really embarrassing, and it's been embarrassing for most Australians that go and see the film. I mean, um, um, that all that time later, and he's still not being recognised by our uh, own people, for him not to be recognised was an absolute disgrace. The great thing about it is, though, that there was uh, the American team um, heard that he wasn't going to be at the Olympic Games, um, and some of the guys from the American team... Um, called him up, one guy in particular, Steve Simmons, um, called him up and said, you can have my room at the Olympics and I'll, I'll sleep on the floor, which he did. And so um, the American team looked after him. Now, Peter was so proud to be walking around Olympic Village with an American track um, shirt on. Um, and people were wondering, why is he wearing an American track, track um, shirt? Because he's an Aussie. Um, but <laughs> finally, people realised that he, he was... He was welcomed by the American team more than what he was by the own, his own Australian committee. Um, you say he I stayed think. close with, with, with Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos? Yeah, Peter was, was like a brother and, and continued to be 
like that for the rest of his life. Tommy, John and Peter together um, were as strong as you could possibly be. In fact, there's a, a moment when the three of them uh, had gotten together and you filmed it, and uh, John Carlos said he would die for, for Peter Norman. Yeah, the strength that um, these guys had together um, was remarkable. And in fact, I can, I can summarise these guys as John was the kind of the groovy one that, um, that used to you know, probably be more the troubled kid. Um, Tommy was the astute uh, student type. Um, and Peter was the larrikin. And these guys, as the three of them together, um, just got along really, really well and, and really loved each other as brothers. You said Peter was the what? The larrikin, as in the funny one. The larrikin at the very Australian... It's an Ocker Aussie saying here in Australia, the larrikin. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the ultimate um, suggestion of being a dude, being the cool one. Oh, really? Well, I'm glad I learned yeah. that. Um, yeah. Do you, do you um, still watch the film yourself? Um, I do watch it, and I watch it mainly because I miss my best friend and my uncle. Um, it, it was such an emotional ride because when Peter died, um, I was about two weeks from finishing the film, and um, that really hurt, obviously, because um, the whole reason I did this film was to honour him because of how much um, he and I... Uh, loved each other and, and how much we got along and and um, you know for me to uh, miss that opportunity of of um, showing Peter to the world and having him there has been a real hard thing for me and my family so yeah I do watch the film a lot I I like to go to as many screenings as I can with audiences because I love to see how the audience react um, it's a it's always a very sad um, moment when you see a whole theatre of people crying at the same time. It's kind of nice for me to see um, because I know that they they look at Peter differently. So, look, I, I'll go and see it any time I get the chance. <laughs> well, well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Matt Norman. His documentary film Salute plays Saturday, May 9th at 4.45 p.m. and Wednesday, May 13th at 12 p.m. at the Riverfront Twin Cinemas in Santa Cruz as part of this year's Santa Cruz Film Festival. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. As mentioned in that previous interview, Peter Norman died in 2006 as Matt Norman was completing his documentary. But I was able to speak to one of the athletes who took part in that fabled protest at the 1968 Olympics, 200-meter bronze medalist John Carlos. Both he and gold medalist Tommy Smith were members of the famed San Jose State sprint team. I started our interview by asking him about some of the Olympic footage in Matt Norman's film. There's a sequence that shows a, a preliminary heat uh, prior to the 200-meter finals. And um, you won the heat. Peter Norman came in second. And as he crossed the finish line, he sort of leans over and seems to yell something at you. And you, in turn, make this sort of swatting motion, like, later for you? <laughs> Waving him down. Well, you know, Peter and I, you know, we had a uh, tremendous amount of respect for one another's talent, as well as both of us being pretty cocky about who we were as athletes. So that's that's what that was. So, so what did he say to you? That was personal, man. I don't talk about what people tell me. <laughs> okay. So, um... At that point, you saw him, I imagine, as a, as a rival on the track. Did you have any other feelings about him? Oh, no, Peter, like he was my brother. I mean, at the time of the heat, at that point? 
Well, I had no mis no no misgivings with Peter. You know, that's part of the game. You know, uh, it's just like you know, track and field was like two guys in the West. You know, everybody's claiming to be to have the fastest gun in the West. So you know, he was boasting about his abilities. I was boasting about mine, and Mr. Smith boasted about his. Trying to get into each other's heads. Well, that's that's like I say, that's part of the game. You know, anytime you uh, in competition in track and field, you know, you're always trying to apply some sort of psychology on the next guy. So, so the 200 meters final took place, very legendary uh, track event. Peter Norman took the silver, Tommy Smith the, the gold, you took the bronze. Um, and then you and Tommy Smith, of course, were, were thinking of a, of a protest on the medal stand. Did Peter Norman know about that, and how did he know about that? Uh, he didn't find out until actually we got in the tunnel. You got in the tunnel heading out onto the, uh, the, the playing field. Um, to the podium, right. To the podium. So he finds out at the very last minute, and what did he say? You know, you thought it was very interesting that uh, we would take it upon ourselves to do something far greater than athletics. You know, uh, you know, he was telling us at the time that his his parents were Salvation Army workers all of his life, and and he was concerned about humanity as well. So you know, it played right into his hands. And then I asked him what he liked to have an Olympic project for human rights button wear, and he said, of course. And uh, the rest is history. So um, he wore this button, Olympic Project for Human Rights, was an organization that you were a major part of that had formed to, to, to make civil rights, you know, an issue at the Olympics, right? Absolutely right. Um, what was the feeling there as you approached uh, the victory stand? Oh, uh, you know, let's get the show on the road. That's, that was the most prevalent feeling for all of us. Let's do this. There had been a big buildup. You wanted to get it, get it done. Well, that's the main focus of me going to the games was to do the uh, demonstration. You know, as far as the medal was concerned, I just had to win a medal to, to get on the victory stand. So the medal was sort of a means to an end. Right. You had to win one of the three medals in order to do what you had to do. There had been um, speculation that other athletes would do something even prior to you guys, but really nothing much had happened. Well, you know, first of all, man, let me just say this to you. Uh, it takes a tremendous amount of courage, man, to, to first of all, make the conviction to yourself that, that yes, I'm satisfied with my uh, uh, decision in terms of making a statement. And then it takes an enormous amount of more courage to actually go out and make this statement. So, you know, a lot of people just didn't have uh, the courage enough in them to do it, and then they used whatever uh, they could use uh to, to dissipate, to get away from it, mm -hmm. uh, such as I promised my coach I was going to win, I promised my community, my parents, I've been training all my life. And, you know, we knock, we're not knocking any of those individuals for the stance that they took. They was entitled to it. All we wanted to do was try and make everyone have a better understanding as to why we thought it was necessary to, to boycott the Olympic Games or, or to make some sort of public statement. And um, you guys knew full well there would be consequences. I mean, you weren't under any illusion that it was going to be easy. Oh, you know, the, the ultimate consequence was, you know, our lives, because our lives were threatened for two and a half years, three years. Who who was it that was threatening your lives? Racists. Just just sort of freelance racists calling you or, or sending letters? Letters and telegrams and all kind of stuff. And they had... Um, they had done some pretty horrible things uh, along with the threats. I mean, Harry Edwards, you know, the man at San Jose State uh, who um, helped organize these protests, someone had, as a way of warning him, had killed his dogs. Uh, it wasn't his dog, actually. They just found a dog, a big black German Shepherd. 
and uh, he stabbed the dog up and left him in his doorway. Were those guys ever caught? No. No. They never catch him. You know, you have to take into account, man, this was in 1968, and, and you have to take into account that a lot of the races that I might be talking about today were woven into the, into the fabric of society at that particular time. A lot of them worked for the government. You know, a lot of work for city, state, and federal governments, agencies. Uh, a lot of them were just grassroots people from the streets. So, I mean, you know, racism was was on the front page real strong at that particular time. And as I said, they were woven into the various agencies of this country. So at that moment, knowing about the threats, at that moment, uh, you know, when the national anthem starts playing and you and Tommy raised your, your fists, um, bowed your heads, um, were you guys thinking, you know, this might be it? Uh, well, what I was thinking about was a vision that I had when I was a kid. That's the first thing that came to my mind. When I was a kid, God showed me in a stadium on a box and, and showed me that everyone was, a, was extremely happy about something that I did because he didn't show me what I did. He just showed me in the stadium on this box. And in a split second, it turned to anger. And that happened 15 years before I actually reached the victory stand in Mexico. You were about seven then. Seven, eight years old, right. That's that's an amazing um, that's an amazing thing. You it truly is amazing. It's almost like uh, you you know you you in the war, man, and all your buddies get killed, and you want to know why did God spare you? You know, so it's, it's the same difference. You know, you say something as monumental as this. Why did God choose me to be a part of this? And, and why do you think? Uh, I don't know. Uh huh. Something that I would have to put to him one day. <laughs> Um, so you had this vision at seven or eight years old of, 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 of doing something that was considered really impressive, but then the, uh, the joy turned to hate. Well, it did the same thing it did in the vision. Yeah, and, and, and then this indeed did come true. I mean, after the Olympics, just tell me about some of the consequences for, for your life and, and for the life of Tommy Smith. Well, you know, like, let's say this, man. It was sunshine and, and, and good times. And then it changed to thunder and lightning and, and, and very negative. Hard time getting jobs? People wouldn't hire you? Uh, you couldn't find a job anywhere. You know, uh, um, for the better part of 15 years, man, I had the big bar and steel. And um, you make a reference in the film to what happened to, to, your, to your wife at the time. Absolutely. Yeah, my wife just couldn't take no more. And the uh, only way she saw out was to take her life. And much as I feel for my wife, I feel even more for my kids. And I don't know whether you saw the documentary to Return to Mexico, but that's still a sore spot with me. And uh, if I say I was to ever change anything in my life, that would probably be the thing that I would change in terms of safeguarding my family better than I did at that time. What happened to your children? Well, my kids were scorned in school because uh, I was their dad. Uh, you know, they couldn't have the things that normal kids have, you know, at Christmas time or on their birthdays. Uh, it was it was rough times. The food wasn't as, as plentiful as they needed as, as young kids growing up. Uh, I remember I used to wake them up in the middle of the night and tell them to go take all their belongings out of their little dresser drawers and break their drawers up and have them go sleep around the fireplace and throw all the wood in the fireplace because we couldn't afford to pay the electric bill for heat. So, I mean, they remember all of these things. Now, over the years, attitudes changed. I mean, uh, we look back now, and there's a, there's a statue to you and Tommy Smith on the San Jose State campus. You've been honored in many ways. Well, I don't know whether statues, uh, you know, uh, attitudes change. 
the statue on San Jose State campus came about because of the young minds on that campus. The, the Student Body Association uh, worked, went to work to raise the money and, and find the artist to establish this statue. It wasn't just, say, the open faculty of San Jose State did it. So, you know, relative to attitudes changing, uh, I think time changes everything. You know, uh, as to whether they have a better understanding today, uh, I think the verdict is still out on that because uh, relative to what we're receiving and what we should have received a long time ago, we still we still not won on that just yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does it ever feel a bit hypocritical that, you know, the official side of America that did its best in some ways to, to end your career after the 68 Olympics now occasionally treats you like, oh, you were always one of ours, you know, you were... You're, we're proud of you and all of that. Is there is there something you know a little two faced about that? You think? Oh yeah, it's just the way the system is. You know, I mean, you sit back, you think about all the various shows that they have on TV and so many ways they let young individuals make money. And uh, as Mrs. Smith and I have done something that was so monumental and done it in the right vein, uh, they don't set us up to make the money. You know, we still have them going on the Oprah Winfrey show and sat down and talked to Oprah Winfrey about you know the why, where, and what's of Mexico City. Uh, so it's still a lot of people that has that attitude that uh, if they associate with us, with us uh, it's, it's a bad reflection on them. This ain't the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, it's a lot smaller, but uh, I want to give you this opportunity. Is there anything from that period of history that you think people still don't understand that, that maybe you could take this opportunity to tell us about? Well, first of all, I'd like people to understand that, uh, you know, what we did in Mexico City wasn't about medals. It was about human beings and, and, and the human race. And, and we wasn't taking sides in terms of saying I'm a black race, I'm, I'm of the black race or white race or, or whatever race, uh, other than the fact that we were saying we're part of the human race and we expect to be treated as human beings. Uh, I think that many blacks and people of color prior to that time have, have been treated as substandard citizens uh, of this great country in which we live. Uh, you know, we had to do something to to try and shock people into reality, and, and that's what it was all about, to, to wake people up, you know, to resurrect people's consciences uh, because many consciences have gone to sleep. Uh, so that's what it was about. It wasn't in, in, in a violent sort of way. We didn't have any disdain in terms of trying to tear the country down or uh, burn the country up or anything of that sort, which the media was trying to express to people that, like, we were two, two, two-headed dragons spitting fire and, and we were anti-white, and we are just so cold-hearted militants and that kind of thing. That's the way that we were depicted. We never had an opportunity to express that these things were just falsities. Um, in fact, uh, there's a, a moment from the uh, film Salute I wanted to play, which is Peter Norman describing the, um, the gesture uh, that you and Tommy Smith made. And so let's listen to that right now. The symbolism went something along these lines that the... The heads were obviously bowed in brothers and sisters that had made the supreme sacrifice in the cause of African-American unity. The raised arm and the clenched hand uh, was a symbol of unity with the fingers coming together and a symbol of strength. It was never meant as a threatening gesture. The black socks that they wore throughout the competition and no shoes was a sign of African-American poverty, the fact that they couldn't get jobs. They weren't respected in jobs. They couldn't get decent jobs. 
they couldn't get decent education and all of this symbolism went uh, went virtually by the board because they didn't get a chance to explain it. The press didn't want to hear about that. All they wanted to hear about were these militant young black athletes that had despoiled the Olympic dais. So th there was Peter Norman describing what you guys actually meant by the raised fist, by the sock feet, and, and other elements. I don't think uh, the public ever knew how packed with symbolism th that gesture was. Right. Well, you know, at the same time, man, you have to realize it's not, it's not just Peter saying it. Peter is a young white individual at that particular time saying it. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand that, you know, just for the mere fact that he was the man that he was to, to express what he felt in his heart, uh, to wear the button, and then to be ridiculed as badly as he was back in Australia as Mr. Smith and I were here in the United States, merely because he supported us by wearing a button and he stood on the victory stand. He didn't disrespect his flag. He stood at attention. He didn't disrespect our flag, but just merely because he was in that race. God mm -hmm. put him in that race and he did well enough to be on that victory stand and he wore an Olympic Prize for Human Rights button and the whole nation of Australia came down on that individual. Uh, it just shows you how, how baffling things are in life. It does. Um... Well, John, I, I just want to really want to thank you for your time today, and and um, just personally, if you if you do come up to Santa Cruz, I'd like to shake your hand. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Take care then. You make sure you get rid of that that, that flu you got. <laughs> oh no, it's not swine flu. It's just a little cold. <laughs> I hope not. All right, buddy. You take care now. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. And that was John Carlos. He is a youth counselor in Palm Springs, California. And uh, once again, that film, Salute, screens Saturday, May 9th, and Wednesday, May 15th, or May 13th, in the Santa Cruz, uh, as part of the Santa Cruz Film Festival. For more information, go to santacruzfilmfestival.com. Next up, the singer Yusu Endur is a much-admired celebrity in his native Senegal. He's also a Muslim, like most Senegalese, so you wouldn't expect a major controversy to break out when Yusu decided to create an album celebrating Islam in Senegal. But controversy is exactly what happened. The album in question, called Egypt, was the center of a struggle over who gets to speak and who gets to sing about religion in Senegal. And that struggle is the subject of a new movie by filmmaker Chai Vassarelli. It's an intimate portrait of a serious artist challenging tradition. The film shows at the Santa Cruz Film Festival, and I'll give out details later in this broadcast. But first, an interview with director Chai Vassarelli. And we're going to start off here with a performance from the film. This is Yusu Endor singing the song New Africa. We Africa, we jump to be thinking, wow, no love for you, actually you to cry, but you big out, yet to do great, ten yard and ten, wow, you know we sorry now, ten minutes now, no new courage. Bodul na bekhat na nyu defona bia Sokol dotul ne todo dokhat dotul fento Suma senyo na Afrika ben nik mokay gite Nyu bole suni khalat ak suni dole joko Nyu bi frontiere takhal yoni bagi bagi se 
change your thinking. Walk together. Keep on walking. Shek Anta Yom. Kwame Nkrumah. Stephen Biko. Chai, let me welcome you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Even though here in your case is New York and my case it's Santa Cruz, California. I'd probably prefer to be where you are. Um, how big is uh, Yusu Endur in, in Senegal? I would imagine he's probably one of the three most identifiable people in Senegal. Along with? The president and um, certainly some of the, um, the soccer players. More than a pop star. Um, he is more than a pop star. He's a public figure within Senegalese society, and he owns a radio station, a newspaper. Um, he's opening a television station. He's involved in many different you know, parts um, of Senegalese society, and he's also a very large philanthropist. And, and as we heard in that opening song um, that I began this, this interview with, you know, he has a political side. He's sung about a lot of different things, human rights, uh, environmental causes, in the song uh, I just played, he was talking about African unity and uh, urging Africans to come together to solve Africa's problems. Has he always been that way? Um, the most remarkable thing about Yusu is that he is someone who has lived successfully by his convictions um, every part of his life. So I, I believe he's always been that way. And I think it also has a lot to do with his griot background. Mm -hmm. um, a griot traditionally is a is a praise singer, but they're the oral historians of a society. And I think that that, that tradition certainly informs Yusu's music. And, and your film does describe Yusu's connection to the griot tradition, that um, his grandmother was a griot. And when he was growing up, he decided to, to explore that side of his background and went to live with his grandmother intentionally to connect with that tradition? Yes. And she's in the film, 90... 96. 96. But, you know, but they estimated her age. To be. And they seem to have a very, very loving relationship. They're very close. Which raises a question for me. How did you get access? Um, this is a really intimate film. I mean, this is a, a major, major star. And clearly you spent a long time with him. How did you manage this? Persistence, um, idealism, hope. Um, I really respect that once Yusu made the decision to make this film, he opened up. And he, he knew, I believe, that it was very important what was happening, what his project was. Um, and I just spent a lot of time with them. And the band became like a family, and his own family, you know, welcomed me. So, yes, no, I mean, it, it, was, it was a wild few years and kind of probably changed my life fundamentally. But um, I think that Yusu understood what I was looking to make, and he also agreed that it was an important story, so he understood that this is something he had to commit to. I actually gave him D.A. Pennebaker's um, kind of classic film, Don't Look Back. Oh, you did? Bob Dylan. <laughs> of all <laughs> films. Yes. I mean, I just wanted to give it to him before we decided to make the film so he could understand the commitment. Um, I think our commitment goes a little bit beyond that even. <laughs> um, but, you know, just understand that, you know, you have to live with the camera. So, so you were aware of the Egypt Project, his making of this, this album, of, of religious music, of, of Islamic praise songs. You were aware of this from the beginning, and that's what you wanted to, to make the film about? Yes, 
I was aware of, aware of it from the beginning. The moment I heard about the project, I thought, you know, that's the film that has to be made. Yeah. Um, so uh, before we get any further, tell us what this Egypt project was and why you thought it was so brave and important. Basically, Yusu is, fa- is famous for his Mbala, which is an African rhythmic pop, essentially. Um, he was famous for his collaboration with Peter Gabriel. He owned a nightclub um, in Dakar. He was a very po- kind of rather a pop figure. And Yusu grew up listening to the music of Um Kalsum, who's a very, very famous Egyptian singer. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of in the first days of radio, where Um Kalsum's concerts would be broadcast throughout the Muslim world. From live from Egypt. And Yusu grew up listening to this music with his father. And I think it just, he, it inspired him, and it was something that stayed with him. And he decided in 1999 that he wanted to compose an, al- an album that, you know, to honor the legacy of Um Kalsum and to celebrate his own faith. And this wasn't a political album. It, it, was, a, a, it was a purely devotional album. And so he reached out to 20, you know, an Egyptian string orchestra um, con- arranged by Fatih Salama, who's a great um, Egyptian musician, composer, and basically collaborating with this um, Egyptian string orchestra created this album that celebrates Islam in Senegal. And then 9-11 happened, just as he was about to release the album. And so he decided that he couldn't release it because it would be received in support of in support of 9-11. Oh, of, of Islamic terrorism. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. So he decided to postpone the release of the album, and finally in 2003, he decided he couldn't wait any longer, and it maybe could help. Mm-hmm. Um, had Yusu sung about Islam before, or was this really his first attempt to record music that, that was Islamic? Well, I, you know, I don't know if I'd call the, film, the music Islamic, but I, I guess it is. It, it is. it is devotional. Right, um, right. Yusu... I think that this kind of that question gets to the heart of the matter in terms of like religion in Senegal. I mean, religion in Senegal is part of the fabric of everyday life. Um, it's ninety-five percent Muslim, um, but it's it's a you know there's Sufi Muslims. But um, tell us about uh, Islam in Senegal. What kind of you know what is it like? I mean, I, I, Sufism people, I think, if they know Sufism, they think of it as the, the mystical branch of Islam. But but how does it express itself in Senegal? You know, I'm I'm by all means not an expert on Islam in Senegal, but it, you know, Islam in Senegal as I experienced it was is absolutely beautiful. And essentially, um, Sufi brotherhoods from the Middle East migrated to you know West Africa in you know I think beginning in the 12th century or something like that. And it basically infl- it became part it, of the culture in West Africa. It's very similar to you know Islam in other parts of the world. However. Know how to answer this question. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, one thing I'm interested in. I I had a Senegalese friend tell me about Islam in Senegal years ago, and he and the first thing he said was it's very very tolerant and open minded, and you know any images you have of, of fundamentalist rigidity and uh, harsh anti Western sentiment and all of that not true in Senegal. I would agree. I mean, absolutely not true in Senegal. I think you know that that's I guess that's the beauty of Islam in Senegal is that there is a there's there's a very tolerant in terms of acceptance that of the differences that you don't have to be Muslim. They don't want. They, it's not about converting you. It's nothing like that. They're uh-huh. very, and that's what's so special. Like I went on all those religious pilgrimages that you see in the film. Yeah. And you know, sure, people would ask me if I was Muslim, and when I said no, 
you know, they're like, why are you here? That's great. You know, uh-huh. let us tell you more. Um, so it's really, really unique, and it's beautiful, and it's, it, it's, it's part of the fabric of everyday life. And there are people who are very devout, but they're not, it's not about fundamentalism. They scorn that, that, I don't know, that vision of Islam. There's, a, there's an incident in your film that sort of points that up. Uh, when Yusu Ndur is touring with the, the, the Egyptian orchestra, uh, going to Europe to present the uh, the Egypt um, material. I think it's their first gig in Europe. Uh, is it in Dublin? It's in Dublin. And uh, it's in a nightclub. And um, it's during Ramadan, is that right? Yes. Um, the, yes. Um, you see in the Egyptian orchestra went on tour. Um, their first European tour, their first tour was in Europe during um, the holy month of Ramadan. And so the first show was actually in Dublin at a nightclub. And, I mean... Talk about kind of, I don't know, like a crazy moment and cultures colliding. Basically, there are several Egyptian musicians that refuse to perform while there's alcohol in the room because of the sacred nature of the music as well as the, it was the holy month of Ramadan. By no means was this all of the Egyptian musicians. It was, in, it was about five of them. And, you know, that was, Yusu was quite surprised. I mean, he... That's the point, is that, you know, Yusu and the Senegalese members of the band would have been happy to perform. You know, as long as they, you can do whatever you want to do. You know, you can drink, he's not going to drink. And it was just interesting, because you saw these, I don't know, these differences negotiated on every stop of the tour. <laughs> you know? And you were there the whole time. I, yes, I, the I've been on two Ramadan <laughs> tours with about 25 Muslim men. <laughs> well, at this point, let's let's hear some of the music that they made together, Yusu and his Senegalese musicians with this Egyptian orchestra uh, as part of the Egypt project. Mami Mamran Lai Mon Yuan Gekde Yon Hamga Maikan Nyolem Dikuren Yamulamul Azam Lai A clip there from the film, I Bring What I Love, by Chai Vassarelli, who's my guest today. Um, and it's a film about Yusu Endur and his Egypt project, in which he teamed with a group of Egyptian musicians to sing Islamic devotional songs. Chai, Chai what was that song about? Um, it's called Madi Hulai, which basically it's about the Lion Brotherhood. Uh-huh. Essentially, in Senegal, there are several different Sufi brotherhoods, mm-hmm. and What's so interesting, I think, actually speaks to describing 
the um, kind of the form of Islam in Senegal is that you can be a member of any brotherhood. It's your own choice. And Yusu's Egypt album, he dedicates one song to each brotherhood. So he himself is a member of the Maurid Brotherhood. Um, however, the, you know, the, the Egypt album celebrates the Tijan, the, the Layan, um, um, the, the Baifal, the Banyas, and tells their stories. Each song tells a story about one of the brotherhoods. So we've got, um, as we've described it so far, we've got Yusu Endur and this orchestra playing and singing songs uh, about Islam, praising uh, figures who are venerated in, in Senegal. And yet it leads to a lot of problems. Um, it's, it's by no means straightforward. And, and really, the, uh, I think the tension in your film comes from the backlash that uh, Yusu receives. Uh, tell us about that and where it came from. Well, I must admit, it was terrifying. Um, basically, when Yusu released the album in Senegal, very quickly there was a debate, you know, there was a debate on the radio where a minority of people were raising objections about the album. Essentially that Yusu, he had no, no place in sacred music. You know, that he was using, you know, defying the memory of um, this, their Sufi saint. And it just triggered this, this reaction where overnight 50,000 cassettes were returned. Um, Stores wouldn't and, sell them. Yes, store, store, I mean, vendors return the cassette. Uh-huh. And this uh, is the most popular musician in Senegal. Yeah, the, absolutely the most popular musician in Senegal. And it actually was the album that he had, ever, he had most invested in, personally. Um, they were so excited. He was so excited. It meant the Egypt album in general means a lot to him personally. And so the moment it was released, it, it, there was kind of this debate on the radio that became the, you know, the store vendors returned the tapes, and it became a taboo subject. And that's what was so strange and hard and difficult because we he used to live through this year over a year where he came under a lot of scrutiny from the public and there was a fear essentially about his work. Meanwhile he was touring abroad and it was being celebrated as this you know I don't know, celebrated as this, you know, tolerant vision of Islam. <laughs> so it was a very strange, you know, contradictory and Situation, and at the same time, I, I know that Yusu was pushing the envelope, and he did too. And the thing in Senegal is that this, it became a taboo so fast that no one even listened to the to the album, so it became a misunderstanding. Now, when you began this film, you were very interested in this project. It was going to um, present a a positive view of Islam, uh, but did you have any inkling that there would be an uproar? I have to admit that I I knew that this album was important, and it was. It could, could have, it could be controversial, but I was more concerned in how the West would receive it. Uh-huh. And I didn't consider for one moment, honestly, that there would be issues at home in Senegal. Uh-huh. Because Yusu really is the favorite son of the nation. You know, he's so much more than just a pop star. You know, he stands up for, you know, I mean, he's a true philanthropist. He is a very important kind of moral figure within Senegal. And... I just didn't think about it. And the moment it happened, it, it happened very fast. The whole film takes this very personal turn, and it becomes, it was dramatic. It was difficult to live through. Even like kind of, it's funny, now as the film is, about, is being released, um, you know, talking to the press about it, it kind of all comes back, and I see that happening for Yusu as well. Um, it was a very dramatic time. 
It was quite painful. No, it was definitely painful, and it was serious. And yet, Yusu was always the one who knew that he has faith in his, his audience, and he knew that once they listened to it, it would be okay. But I don't want to ruin the end of the film. <laughs> okay, we won't talk about the end of the film. I, I wanted to ask you a question about Yusu um, himself. In your film, I mean, he comes off, as I think most people who watch this will agree, as just one you know, really wonderful human being. We see him very lovingly, you know, relating to, to friends and family, never seems to be up on a high horse despite being a, you know, a superstar. It, and, and obviously you admire him a great deal. Um, but, you know, I just have to ask, is he ever, ever a pain in the butt? <laughs> Show me a superstar that isn't. <laughs> I was going to say. No, Yusu is a prince of a guy. I mean, he's, he, is, he is as he comes across in the film. I've never seen, he always, when he leaves the room, he turns off the light. Uh-huh. And I've never seen Yusu turn away a fan. Uh-huh. And, I mean, it's, he's, it's remarkable. Like, it, he is as he appears in mm-hmm. the film. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know how he does it, in mm-hmm. all honesty. When you watch the film yourself, are there moments that particularly affect you? Yes. Um, I think, I mean, it's funny. It's like there are certain moments that always affect you. You think you would get... I mean, you know, kind of numb to it. Mm-hmm. The opening scene of the film always gets me. When you say the opening scene, do you mean him singing, or uh, which scene do you mean? Um, I think that the, the New Africa that opens the film is a very is a is a just an extraordinary performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think understanding what he's singing about is quite moving. Well, I, I opened the interview with the song you just referred to. Um, you see, singing, um, you know, kind of giving a call to action to Africans to work together and make Africa a better place. And I think I'll end the interview by playing a song that has a similar message but directed to Senegalese. Uh, it's one that Yusu sings before a group of, of students in, I believe, Dakar, Senegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this comes near the end of your movie. So I think we'll go out on that song. And, and thank you very much, Chai. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I guess the film is being commercially released beginning in June. Okay. And we Santa Cruzans get to see it before that. Yes, you do. Thank you. <laughs> And Chai Vassarelli's film, I Bring What I Love, about Yusu Endure and his Egypt project, screens Saturday, May 9th at 6.45 at the Riverfront Twin Cinemas in Santa Cruz. It's part of this year's lineup at the Santa Cruz Film Festival. To find out more, visit santacruzfilmfestival.com. You're listening to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And finally, another event of interest in our area. The philosopher Alva Noe speaks about his book, Out of Our Heads, Why You Are Not Your Brain and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness at the Capitola Book Cafe this coming Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. I spoke to Alva Noe at length, and I'll air a little bit of that interview right now. I'll air, the, air it in its entirety on an upcoming show. We had a spirited exchange, and here's just a little sample. What is this you're telling us that consciousness is not in the brain? The uh, central claim of my research is that although the brain is absolutely necessary for consciousness, it isn't sufficient. 
And this idea that one can explain our experience just in terms of what's going on inside of us is really an unargued for just kind of a a metaphor that seems to have have guided our imagination. So so you write that the brain is not the locus, that is the, the site of consciousness inside us, because consciousness has no locus inside us? Yeah, that's right. It's just a sort of a, a fundamental mistake. Instead of thinking about consciousness as something that happens inside of us, we really need to think about it as something we do, something we enact, something we achieve. And like everything that you do and enact, it depends on the context in which you find yourself. For instance, how you ski depends on your own skill, but it also depends on the landscape of the, of the, of the mountain down which you're skiing. And um, what kind of a conversation you and I have isn't just a sort of an unfolding of what's inside me and an unfolding of what's inside you. It's a dance. So I think of consciousness as like a dance with the world around us. And dance depends on me. Dance depends on what's going on inside me, but not only on what's going on inside me. Well, your claim, again, is that, uh, that consciousness is this larger nexus rather than some isolated, lone thing that can be located in the brain. So, for instance, um, when I was a kid... I read a very scary novel. These aliens had uh, kidnapped this um, this earthling and had performed a series of horrible, horrible operations in which they first cut away one limb and then another and then another, and this guy would wake up and have less and less of himself, and finally he ended up being the proverbial brain in a jar. Uh, you know, and the horror of, of being cut off from the world in that way and yet still thinking uh, in this... Um, Solu- saline solution. <laughs> yeah, you say that's really not a realistic scenario, even if we had the technology. Well, you know, <laughs> when philosophers, philosophers, and and sort of science fiction writers love to um, to make these fantasies. But if you actually try to fill in the details about how the fantasy is supposed to go, I, I, I think it's it beca- beca- becomes easier to see that there's there's little fallacies that are made. So, for example. Um, the solution that keeps the brain going, well, what does that solution have to be doing? It has to be providing all manner of, of stimulation to the brain. Um, well, oxygen at least. It has to be supporting the metabolic process of the brain. Mm-hmm. It has to be disposing of the waste that mm-hmm. is put off by the metabolic yep. process of the brain. So right away, that, 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 that jar is really going to be something like a body. And my, my suspicion is that if you actually try to think it through like an engineer, what would that bat need to be like that su- would support consciousness in the brain? You'd find that you would actually have to replicate a body. But I'd go even a step further and say that if you start to think about how much importance um, stimulation to the brain plays in the generation of consciousness, that pretty soon as engineers we'd really realize that we actually would have to build a world for that body to be in. And so then we come to even even more startling discovery that, yes, animals and worlds have thought, feelings, and consciousness, which is something we knew just at the starting point. Uh, you're, so you're saying you can take the brain out of the boy, but you really can't take the brain out of the world. Well, I guess my, my, my thought is that the, the basic function of the brain is to enable our ongoing dynamic of interaction with the world. Take the world away, take the body away, and you lose the point, and eventually everything goes black. <laughs> 